What's going on, family? What's going on? What's going down? What's shaking? Welcome to another episode of Jonathan Soul. I got the professor, Turtero, only with me. Not only is he an icon in the uh, comics and arts community, uh, he's also, I would say, an archetype, somebody who has shown us not only that art uh, can be meaningful in terms of, uh, you know, of course, self-expression, uh, you know, taking back control of the, of the black image in popular media, but also organizing people in a way that where they can put some, some bread in their pocket. You understand, you know, furthering, um, you know, the, the, the entrepreneurship uh, vibration in the African uh, American community. Uh, Brother Tortell, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. Good, good, good. Now, now, now this particular episode, we're going to talk about art therapy because uh, that's something that you mentioned in our first talk. Can you share uh, with my audience a little bit about your experience with art therapy? Be glad to. Uh, first, I want to preface it with a few things about therapy as a whole. Okay. Uh, uh, therapy is the idea of activities that are designed or by impact have a healing response component to the individual that's practicing them. And, and there's a broad arching category called expressive therapies, of which art therapy is one. Um, we as a people, meaning people of African descent, have endured multi-generational trauma on a beyond industrial level with the the uh, wars for slavery, the enslavement of Africans, Jim Crow discrimination, and then add to it the ridiculousness of black-on-black crime and violence. So there's a huge need for therapy within our communities wherever we exist. Unfortunately, therapy, and particularly special education in public school systems, was misused and as at a certain point was viewed as, quote, a dumping ground for black male students that the system didn't want to be bothered with educating. Mm -hmm. I am not at all saying that did not happen. That happened. But conversely, we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Special ed should be dignified so that the proper services show up for people who have a clinical diagnosis that says they belong in special ed not someone making an arbitrary decision. These things are clinical and can be uh, quantified just like having a broken arm. If you get a broken arm, you need an x-ray. Yeah. And then the x-ray will determine if you got a compound fracture, a splint, fragmented fracture, whether you need bone grafts, a steel implant, or whatever. And then you're going to need therapy to rehab your arm. Nobody, nobody demonized any kind of physical therapy. Nobody's going to look at you and say, well, you need to be a strong man and suck it up. And so what if you only got one arm and one arm's messed up? Nobody's going to say that. But when it comes to emotional, psychological, therapeutic needs, a lot of time we misread the call for therapy on the part of the person that's doing something to say, look, I need help. And then the idea of matching the proper therapy with whatever that person condition is. In other words, whatever their diagnosis is or profile. Mm -hmm. uh, now going back to art therapy. Art therapy is the use of the visual arts processes to either diagnose or treat emotional, 
psychological and sometimes physical conditions and or disabilities. Uh, myself, how did I come by way of art therapy? Um, somebody I was real close to, a high school friend of mine, and we navigated through the street gang madness, and we were both partnered with the Black Panther Party and all of that. He had a younger brother that had cerebral palsy and was confined to a wheelchair. And so, and so I hung out with them a lot. And so his brother was at a treatment diagnostic facility, and so they recruited the friend of mine to go into a training program, he wanted to become a PhD psychologist, which he did later on become. And so, and so we're talking 1970, 1971. He was the only black trainee in this program and he was struggling. And they asked him, they asked him, they said, why are you struggling? He said, cause I need somebody black to relate to. Wow. And, and, they, and, and they told him, we'll go find somebody black and we'll put him in the training program with you. So that turned out to be me. So, so this was a, a highly funded diagnostic facility that at age 19, I could have gone to a neurologist and a geneticist to get a complete workup on your child if I thought your child needed it. And they would do it. They would spare no expense. It didn't cost any money to the families we were serving. And a high, and a high amount of these families were blacks. They were poor blacks. Sometimes they were wealthy blacks. They were wealthy whites. I mean, it was a spectrum. Mm-hmm. So for two, for two years, we were in this training program. When they discovered I was an artist, they were like, you ever heard of art therapy? I'm like, no. So they introduced me to art therapy, and I went into a training strata that quantified artistic processes and activities and how they could have a diagnostic or treatment impact. So, so I'm doing this independent of being in an art education curriculum at the School of the Art Institute. So I've got both of these tributaries going on in my developmental phase, as we would put it, and I'm doing treatment. So when I left that program, I actually set up a program and to show you just what the era was like, the place where I trained was called the Dysfunctioning Child Center. And then the place where I and the place where I set up a program in Lagrange, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago, that place was called the Helping Hand School for the Retarded. Mm. And I and I set up a program there that was based on what was called simultaneous language, where we used a modified form of sign language and also art therapy. So I set this program up before I had my bachelor's degree. I, I had earned an associate's. Nice. So. So the blend of the associate's degree and this training program gave me the juice to set this program up with oversight from the state of Illinois and the Chicago public school system, et cetera. Okay. And I ran this program for a year. Then I set up another program in Chicago that was in a facility that serviced a lot of the high rise housing projects that we had. And I did that for three years. Wow. the idea of therapy is critical to all people and it's lacking with us as a people, meaning blacks and, and people of African descent, because we've, we've, we've cultivated this tradition of not seeing it in a positive way. You know, you know if, if, if your brain is not functioning right when it shows up, you need therapy. 
when you've had an emotional injury, or for instance, what we used to call it in training was an insult. If it was an insult that happened to you in your developmental phase, for instance, in the city of Chicago back then, and we're talking the early 70s, this agency did a map of where they found lead in the communities and then did a map where you had high levels of violence and high levels of underachievement in the public schools and each one virtually fit wow. into the other. Okay. So, so we like to think that the neighborhoods we inherited through what's called white flight was because they didn't want to live around us. Mm-hmm. Well, part of, part of what they found out was where they were living was inundated in lead. So they were leaving those lead based communities behind for us. And a lot of times, if you look at the police reports of what was going on in those communities before black showed up, they had the same amount of crime and violence Mm. because it was, it was lead induced. They had the same amount of dropout rates. It was lead induced. And when you cloak it with things like racism, you don't see lead. But when you start seeing lead and look at how a small amount of lead can morph and insult your DNA that your kids and your kids' kids are affected by this lead they ingested because it was in the dust in your house or it was in the dust in the yard when they were playing or because it was in the water because you still got lead in a lot of these waterways. And so, so your child now is having issues and there's no therapy for your child. Mm. So art, ther- art therapy is a great modality, and I always want to stress it should be done with oversight, meaning someone who's really been trained as an art therapist, you know, like all therapy. It's just like a doctor. I mean, sure, all of us can learn first aid and get a first aid kit. But if your arm is broke, you don't want your homeboy talking about, dude, I can hook up your arm, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, you want to go to a trained physician, So there are therapy programs around the United States. Typically, they're at the graduate school level. At the undergrad level, there are art therapy classes that you might take as part of child development or part of art education curriculum. So I want to stress that it's therapy. It's not like, oh, you have talent. You like making art. So now we can say what you did was art therapy. Okay. And, and, and I also want to add to my confusion how I'm going to sound when I say this. Almost every creative practice has some kind of healing component. See, so that's why you have, believe it or not, poetry therapy, music therapy, dance therapy, and art therapy. But the goal of it is not to make you a musician, a dancer, an author, a poet, or, or an artist. The goal is to use was distinct in that practice so it can have treatment just like psychotropic drugs of certain class do certain things to arrive at a therapeutic threshold meaning it has an impact on you and and you become better in whatever area is targeted well the same thing with these other modalities uh for instance at the university of chicago in the 80s i was involved with a residential facility there and it was a team. So, so you know, there was the, um, the supervising psychiatrist. There was the attending psychologist. There were a couple of social workers, occupational therapists, and me. And so every client on the unit 
all of us did an intake evaluation and a diagnosis. And it got to a point <laughs> that the supervising psychiatrist, when he would, he'd look at me before I would start and he'd say, okay, now let's hear from the witch doctor. Uh, okay. Because I used an assessment that involved draw, drawing a tree and what you had to say about that drawing to arrive at a diagnosis. And my findings were consistent with the team. And he would always say, I have no idea how you arrived at this. Okay. So let me, let me, let me get this straight. You did your own version of the Rorschach test. Am I hearing you correctly or no? Oh, you could say that it, 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 it arrived at like, like say a psychologist, we use the Rorschach test, uh, a psychiatrist may use it. And then I would have the client draw a picture of a tree and we talk about the drawing. And then afterwards I would arrive at a diagnosis with certain tributary components. And For example, I would give, my give me an example, if you can remember, like, you know, um, I could draw an apple tree and then you would say, Oh, you're depressed. Or he would draw a peach tree and you would say, Oh, I you're could, schizoid, schizoid, something. Well, 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 without getting into too much of that, cause it, I, I know how people take it and run, but in the drawings, I could see early trauma in life. Okay. And, and I could see early trauma, like prior to age five or prior to puberty, oh, wow. you know? Okay. I could see it in the drawing. And I could, I could quantify it in the drawing. Okay, in the drawing, I could see uh, narcissistic personality disorder. In the drawing, I could see a certain amount of sexual trauma. I couldn't say what it was, but I could say it happened. You know, uh, 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 in, the, in the drawings, I could see uh, fine motor issues or laterality issues, like people who haven't really resolved in their brain whether they're right-handed or left-handed. Mm. I could see it in the drawing. And so... You know, if you haven't resolved in your brain whether you're really right-handed or left-handed, it affects how you function in this world. Okay. See, see, so all these things have functions. You know, I could see a certain measure of optical issues, perceptual awareness issues. You know, there were a variety, a variety of things that could be seen in these drawings, how you did the leaves, how you did the bark, how you did the root system, you know, where you position things, you know, and... Um, and then I would have to come up with a treatment plan, you know, like, like did this person need medication or did this person need physical therapy or did this person need art therapy or did they need all of the above? Because getting the diagnosis doesn't necessarily say always what's the best thing to treat it. First, you want to have a diagnosis. You know, like if you go to a doctor and they say, oh, you're sick, that's not a diagnosis. You know, uh, like like in public schools, when I sat on um, the uh, plans that they have, IEP, the, the uh, Individual Educational Plan for Special Ed Students. Well, I don't know about other municipalities, but in the city of Chicago, state of Illinois, if your child has an IEP, the school district is responsible for paying for the therapy, not just the education of your child. So I would always stress with the family, ask for therapy as well. Mm. See, because see, what the system does, it exploits parental guilt. Okay, what do I mean? The parent is saying, I don't want my baby on the yellow bus. I don't want anybody uh, teasing. Okay. I, don't, I don't want anybody teasing me about my baby. So they put your baby in a regular classroom, and your baby knows 
he or she is not functioning at the level of his peers. Okay. So, so they give your baby educational support. So now there's a person to take notes for your baby. They'll, they'll, the teacher will do modifications. So the teacher will change a certain amount of the lesson and then there'll be accommodation. So you get that. Notice none of that's therapy. Yeah. Okay. More like a none of that helping hand. See, kind of thing. Yeah. see, 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 it's not therapy because when your kid steps in that building and there's 2000 people running around and your kid is going too many people, right? Yeah. Your kid, your kid can't handle that, but nobody realizes it because they're not therapizing with your kid. So, so your kids move from class to class to class and the parents are like, I'm so glad that junior is in there with the normal kids. And Junior's passing because of all this other stuff, but Junior's missing a critical element called therapy. So uh, okay. have you have you had much experience uh, from the other side of the, uh, have you had much experience, um, maybe, let me put it like this, have you had much experience observing the way like school administrators and the counselors interact with families in public schools? Well, I've, I've observed it a lot, you know, cause see when I first, when I first started prior to the, see, I've been doing this for a while mm-hmm. prior to the Reagan, prior to the Reagan Bush revolution, mm-hmm. it was, it was pretty easy to get your child quote excluded from public school, which meant the district paid for your child to go to a therapeutic day school mm-hmm. at a therapeutic day school. Our goal was to work with your child in the hopes that your child could return to a public school, but if not, they could get they could get a full education with us. Yeah, that sounds like some programs from the seventies, man. Which is yeah, which, exactly. which was tremendous. I mean, it helped people, you know, you know, get off welfare, get into their work, you know, working field, help people well, get well, therapy. A lot of those programs. I mean. Well, Reagan and then wiped it out and they spend that money in the military. Okay, so yeah. so at its peak, at its peak, your son, if your son was designated special ed, would get a quality diagnosis mm-hmm. at a therapeutic day school, you and your wife and the rest of the family could get family therapy because your kid was with us. Yeah. Your kid could get individual therapy because your kid was with us. Your kid could get group therapy to learn to better relate with his peers and he got an education. That's beautiful. Okay. Beautiful. Okay. And, and, and back then they had residences that say your kids 18 to 21, he could go into one of these residences and have a job at a sheltered workshop and his paycheck would pay for his keep at the residence. A bus would pick him up and take him to the jobs and there would be a therapist at the job site and also at the residency to still help him with his clinical issues. So he would have, he would have autonomy, independent living and the services. The Reagan, the Reagan Bush revolution came along and said, we're returning people to the community and wiped it out. Wiped it out. Let's, um, let's, so, let's so, go back so to the, had, uh, let's go back to the art therapy piece. I'm, I'm curious about okay. two major points that you brought up. One, um, you said that you participated in the diagnosis phase of the intake. Um, yeah. How did you develop that technique? Was it strictly intuitive? I mean, did you read some books or something and arrived at it? Like how, 
was looking at a tree. You, you follow me? Give you insight into somebody's kind of mental state. Yeah. yeah. Um, I did a lot of study and research at the dysfunctioning child center. Okay. And then, and, and, and then later on, I did more when I got my master's in art therapy at the school of the art Institute. Mm-hmm. So at the, at the dysfunctioning child center, we had a variety of, uh, oh my God, the things that they had you could read. I mean, it would be a file on a, on a patient mm-hmm. and that file, would be, that file would be an inch thick. Okay. okay? And, and we would have what's called an in-service on it. And so there'd be five or six clinicians all talking us through these files and what was in there. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then I would like maybe work with this client. Mm-hmm. And when I worked with the client, every clinician, I'm talking geneticists, uh, uh, pediatrician, uh, sign language specialist, behaviorist, psychiatrist, they all got a actual video of what I did with that client. Wow. They would, they would analyze the video and then they would sit me down and tell me what I may not have understood that worked or didn't work and what kind of things to follow up on and how I had to quantify it with written protocols that they would then scrutinize. So the, so the clinical threshold and oversight was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and sometimes this was 40 hours a week with these people. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Wait, wait, I'm going to tell you how bad it got. It got so bad. I was at a friend's house and his three-year-old remembered my name and I was like, Oh my God, your child's a genius. He's a genius. You know, I had forgotten what normal was like. Wow. Okay. Wow. I I gotten that deep into this. Um, a number of these people, like one guy who I quote a lot, Doctor Ben Denvenesti. Mm-hmm. One time, one time he rolled up his sleeve. He said, "Turtle, you know they call me Turtle." He said, "Turtle, look at this." Well, he has survived the concentration camps. Wow. In Nazi in Nazi Germany, he had his tattoos, wow. and he explained and he explained to me why he and people that went through this kind of trauma needed therapy, why they needed to get an analyst. And, and he said, he said, and guess what, Turtle? So do your people, meaning black people. Mm. And, that's, and that's when the light went off. I think I was about 19 or 20 when he explained that. Like, you need it. Yeah. Don't think you don't need it. You need it. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he said, just because we're Jewish and got a lot of money after that experience, you think we don't need therapy? He says, so just because you're free and you got businesses and slavery ended, don't think you don't need it, mm. you know? And it, and, it, and, it, and it triggered a thought in me that the idea of therapy needed to be dignified. But getting back to art therapy, mm-hmm. they really had me do a lot. So it got to a point where they would match what the art process was doing with certain psychotrophic drugs to see if it could arrive at the same therapeutic threshold. In other words, the first time around, there's no evidence of change. You know, you may have to do it 30 times before it clicks in. Mm-hmm. Same, with, same with psychotrophic medications. The first time around, you're just woozy, you know, you know or, or to use street language, you got a buzz, but it hasn't reached to that therapeutic threshold yet. Mm-hmm. Then, you, then you get to where it gets that. Well, it turns out that the art process, the, the different parts of your brain that it utilizes, it impacts the neural transmitters, the way you process serotonin, 
the way you process certain dopamines, the way you process the communication process and things like that. So because they had all this, shall I say, the, the backbone, because I had all this oversight. Yeah. I, I mean, I could, go to, I, I could go to a geneticist and say, you know, Dr. Pergamon, what do you think? Mm. What do you think of this? Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, I could go to Dr. White and say, you know what, something's going on here. And, and we would go back and forth with it. And I, I, I kept all my notes for decades. Um, there was something so else uh, related to um, the art therapy experience that you brought up in the first interview. And that you, you were saying that there were like measurable results, like benefits that you observed. You mentioned like a school attendance and, and, and a drop in, oh, yeah. in, in bad behavior. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, I had a facility in the Robert Taylor Holmes housing development housing project. It was the largest public housing scenario in the United States. And, um, was it a nice enough, place to live? Uh, it was for its first five years. Then after that, it wasn't. Okay. And so, and so you had building wars, like the people in the red buildings would shoot at the people in the white buildings. Mm. Uh, uh, I mean, you just had ridiculous crime. So, so I worked with, um, at that time, it was the Soft Sheen Company, and Ed Gardner started a program called Black on Black Love to replace Black on Black Crime, mm-hmm. and they agreed to let me head up what became, <coughs> it became the Black on Black Love Fine Arts Center. Okay. And so I viewed it as art therapy on an industry. We were servicing a radius of about five buildings. And and so um, going to its second year, the police, the Chicago police, this was in the mid 80s, 84 to 86. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the police did a study and found that truancy improved, that the dropout rate with the people we were servicing went down, wow. that, that, that incidences of violence went down. Um, there were there were. I mean, it was measurable that things got better. Um, And and all that was through the visual arts process at the art center. Uh, At at that time, not that I'm much different now, but at that time, I was what they call light in the butt. I weighed all of 145 pounds. Mm -hmm. And I'm over over there in the housing projects without a car. Mm. And, 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 And we're talking drug wars. We're talking drive bys. And all this stuff start changing for the better. Wow. And, and, and the common thread was their participation in the programming at the Black on Black Love Fine Arts Center. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, a few blocks down the street was the police station. And above the police station was a battered woman's facility. So I started doing, I started doing programming there. And how did I find that out? Because a couple of the women in the building kind of disappeared, and I found out they were in the shelter. So I took our, so I took our therapy to the shelter, and then a few blocks down from there was the uh, Nat King Cole Drug and Alcohol Abuse Rehab Center for felons. So I was spending like 60 hours a week up and down this strip, and almost all of it was art therapy, and I could see the progress. I could see the change, you know? That's amazing. And, amazing. Uh, now, now, drawing a line on a piece of paper doesn't make you feel better. 
no. taking a magic marker or a paint, you know, on the canvas isn't isn't therapeutic. So what is it about art therapy that is therapy? Well, it, in the engagement of, say, for instance, drawing that line on the paper. Uh-huh. Okay. If you're going from left to right, are you switching hands? Because you have this hemispherical breakdown where you're not comfortable going across midline. Hmm. And, and so we might see that. Or do you have a dis, dis, you know, you can't do it smoothly. Like one person does it and it's a clean stroke and another person does it and it's always choppy. Okay. So, so we, so we look at when it's choppy, see, as a, as just that activity, you said, having a diagnostic capability, that fine motor thing, you know, how do you grasp that pencil? See, like those of us who do it normally, naturally take it for granted. We don't know about people who got problems. So we, we can just see like what's normal and what's showing. Cause some people literally, if they're going from left to right, they change hands. Mm, I've never seen that. They change hands. You see what I'm saying? They change yeah, hands. Yeah, yeah. Um, 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 sequencing. A lot of us have difficulties in sequencing, and a lot of art making deals with sequencing. Now it so, sounds like you're still in the diagnostic mode. Is that well? But now, but, but see now, now I'm talking also the treatment mode because okay. the diag the diagnostic mode and the treatment mode sometimes overlap. Okay. So if you if you realize this person can benefit from more sequencing you engage them in activities that have more sequential steps in it Mm -hmm. so maybe the art process at first just has one step now it's got two steps now Mm -hmm. it gets to a point where it's three steps okay and so they 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 grow to understand sequencing is critical there are a lot of things industrial society and definitely in the digital society that if you can't do sequencing, you can't function. Mm. And, and, and so a lot of people are, 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 are either inept or it's a real, there's something in there that's interfering that in an art activity, they're more comfortable and it reaches them. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it reaches them on the therapeutic level. So you might think, I can't believe it, man. You just over there doing puzzles and then you put the puzzle together and then you take some glue and now you move the puzzle piece by piece and you put it on this cardboard. And now you stick it in a frame. Well, look at how many steps went down to do that. What do you okay. think is going through people's minds when they're doing these activities? Cause I remember when I well, draw, it, nothing's going through my mind. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. What's going through your mind that you're aware of is different than what's happening with your brain functionality. Hmm. See, see, so the quadrants in your brain, the way the hemispheres coordinate or don't work has nothing to do with the fact that I don't like the way that picture looked when I drew it. Mm -hmm. Okay. If I draw it, these things are taking place. If I engage in the activity, uh, for instance, Using watercolor tends to calm people down. It has a calming impact, hmm. you know. And so you may have just drawn the most awful looking tree using watercolor, or should I say paint it, but the activity produces a kind of calm in you hmm. that is total, totally separate from visually you saying, I don't like trees. Okay. 
Okay, ain't nothing we can do to make you like a tree. That's okay, sir, but let's just stay with the activity. In these kinds of uh, therapeutic uh, environments, is there ever any homework or any other kinds of, uh, yeah, like homework? Like you say, okay, now, kid, go home and, you know, if ever you get stressed, break out the watercolor. That that depends on, see, what you're asking now is it depends on the nature of the treatment plan. Okay. See, it's no different than, say, you go uh, to an occupational therapist and they put you in a tub of water and have you walk slowly from one end of the tub to the other end and back. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you sitting there saying, I can't swim. I don't like doing this. This is a waste of time. Mm-hmm. But, but you need it to regain certain functions. Okay. okay. And then they'll tell you, well, when you're at home, fill the tub up with water and just gently move your legs back and forth while you're laying in it. Okay. So they may ask you to do that at home or, or, or something like this. You see what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. it depends on the treatment on the treatment plan that it may have a carryover. And, and like all of us, some of us are good with homework and some of us are not, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, you know, and so you go home and you're like, I don't know why I'm doing this, but fill up the tub. You fill up the tub and you're doing it. The other person in the group doesn't do it after six months you've reached the therapeutic threshold goals and objectives and this other person hasn't. And the other person is looking at you like saying, how did you do it? And you're like, I don't know, man, I just did what they told me to do. Wow. <laughs> you know, and that other person's man, that stuff's boring and lame. I'm not doing that stuff. And you're looking at him saying, I'm glad I did it. <laughs> you, know? Mm-hmm. you know, cause now you back jogging, riding your bike. In well, this, this uh... other thing, you know, this other thing, go ahead, go ahead. In this, in this digital, you know, vibration we're in with the social media and then the kids constantly on the phone, I mean, all that kind of stuff. Do you think that that kind of um, old school method of making art, do you think that still would have value today? Well, it has greater value uh, today. Um, instant art, like, you know, being a screenager where everything's on the screen. Yeah. Uh, wait, 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 did you has, say a screenager? I said screenager. Yes, I did. <laughs> okay. And you ain't got to be young to be a screenager. Right, right. Okay. Right. Okay. So, so you know, this, this, see, like what, what a lot of people don't know. I mean, have you noticed that now all the cell phones look like? That's because all the companies arrive at the same optimum formula. And guess what they used as the model? The slot machine. Huh. So, so the, the cell phone is designed to keep you over-engaged with it, just like a slot machine. The cell phone is designed to give you a reward, bing, another one buzz, another yeah. boom, this, boom, that. So it's constantly, just like a slot machine, keeps you going, right? Mm-hmm. So it's designed to keep you engaged. So, so it's, it's, it's unfair to look down at screenagers. They've been overwhelmed by the power of that tool, yeah. just like people that are hooked on a slot machine. Okay, you see people who, oh, baby, I'm going to the casino. You're like, what? And and they go and they sit at that machine, and you're like, this is it? Yeah. You know, but if you sit there long enough, you'll be just like them. You'll be hooked, yeah. You'll be there. And so, and so these things do this. Now, getting back to making art by hand, um, anything you do by your hands, 
has instant feedback into your brain. See, like we're wired with something called proprioception. Okay. Proprioception is like right now you don't have to look at your feet to know where you are because your feet are always telling your brain where it went after your brain told your feet to go there. So it's a constant dialogue. Mm -hmm. So, so every time you engage that system, it's like, it's like cardio. It's like making the system work better. Mm. So, so when you're engaging in the creative expressive therapies or the expressive arts, you're getting something, you're gaining something. I mean, neurologists and anthropologists every now and then get together and agree that the human big brain, a big part of it evolved, evolved when humans started making art. Really? Because because okay. it was the making it was the making art that led to making the alphabet. You know, we had pictures, we had pictures of the animal before we could have a symbol that represented the am animal before we could have a sequence of symbols to represent the word when we said the name of the animal. So as we're engaging with the process of making it, your brain is getting the workout when we're engaged in the process of analyzing and understanding it, our brain is getting engaged. The screen age, the screen age thing, the CPU and the phone is doing the work that your brain's not doing. Mm. So it's providing it without you engaged. So you end up like that crazy movie that came out a few years ago, Wally, where they just turned plump because and and they were worthless because oh, they yeah, didn't do yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah, they just pulled and, around. Yeah, they didn't do anything. So, so you know, um, I taught public school in Chicago, mm -hmm. high school. And so sometimes what I would do, <laughs> I would give a student a three-step command. Like, this came from my clinical thing. Okay, what do I mean? I say, hey, I want you to do a favor. I want you to go to the office, ask for Miss So-and-so, and tell her I need today's attendance roster. Three steps. Okay. Well, you might get to the office. <laughs> Maybe get to the office. Okay. Okay. Now, now you got to the office. Could he remember to ask for Miss Daniels and not Miss Davis and not Miss Brown? Right. Okay. And then can he ask for the attendance roster? Or, or does he say, or does he get there and say, well, Mr. Only sent me here. He said y'all would know what he wanted. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we're talking okay. elementary school at this point, or middle school, or what? We're talking high school. What? I'm telling you, I'm oh, telling you, this sequencing. Man. Okay. Look, All right. look, look, sequencing. You see what I'm getting? Three step, four step, yeah. five step commands. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know? Okay. And so, and so a lot of this is critical. You know, I would watch them leave things. They never leave the phone, but I watch them leave everything else important. I mean, if you go through, I, I can't speak for your town. But in Chicago, if you went through the lockers on the last day of school when the students are leaving high school and leaving stuff behind, mm -hmm. it's all buried. It's all buried in the locker. We're talking new shoes, new jackets, backpacks, new pens. Yeah. It's just there because they all come home and say, anyway, I mean, the thing is that their object constancy, their attachment is so focused on the screen phone that these other things don't matter. So so now so now we circling back around. Uh, our people definitely, you know, Africans, African Americans, people of African descent, particularly in the West, they experience, you know, a lot of uh, slights, 
and challenges on a daily. They have to contend with a system that's very antagonistic. And then, of course, that trickles down to the personal and the family. Uh, mm-hmm. If I said, hey, I, maybe I got some nieces and nephews or, you know, whatever, or kids, well, my kid's older now, but, I mean, would you recommend some kind of version of a DIY kind of art therapy or something? Like, uh, um, um, I, 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 of course, I feel strongly about art therapy. Yeah. And what I would say is try to get either an analysis or a total diagnosis. Okay. Okay. And where black culture is concerned, try to get somebody that can help interpret it from a black perspective. Yeah. For instance, a lot of what Sigmund Freud was talking about didn't deal with nappy hair, didn't deal with big lips, didn't deal with dark skin, light skin. So, so we have a whole strata of issues that they didn't know about. Okay, so so where you have people in the African diaspora that are out of their mind based on how they look, they suffer what I call narcissistic devastation every time they look in the mirror. Narcissistic okay. devastation? Is that the same oh, as self-hate? Uh, see, that's my clinical term for self-hate. Uh-huh. And so and so and so. If I look in the mirror and think these lips don't belong on my face because these lips are ugly and something's wrong with me that the hair that grows out of my head turns into a kink and oh my God, it's a nap. Okay. I mean, the Black is Beautiful movement and the Nation of Islam rise up black man at a time that we were afraid to call each other black was massive therapy and did a lot of healing. Yeah. You know, and Nation of Islam under the honorable Elijah Muhammad, wherever they operated, communities were quiet and safe, mm-hmm. law-abiding, law-abiding, and, and, they believed in, and they believed in direct intervention, and they attacked that thing that you call self-hate. He called it that. And they attacked that thing that I'm calling narcissistic devastation, where you get into such a level of self-hate. If I hate me for the way I look, I hate you for looking like me. Mm. And so if I hate you for looking like me, oh, it's on and it ain't pretty. Yeah. Except guess what? I don't have the tools to even articulate. That's what I'm functioning with. You know, know? I I did a little bit of YouTube research. I'm sure like every podcaster does for a topic they don't quite understand. And, um, I'm, I had to go back to another conversation I had with a psychologist in Palestine. Okay. Uh, okay. Years ago, I was doing news, and then Israel was bombing the fuck out of uh, Palestine, and then I got some numbers, yeah. and I called people over there. It's, you know, I think, I, from my reading of history, African Americans have had some kind of affinity with, you know, the Palestinians or whatever. You know, I don't know if it's reciprocated, but Malcolm went over there. I figured, shit, let me call and see what the brothers is doing over there. And um, uh, one of the psychiatrists and the medical doctors, they were telling me that not only are they treating, you know, people for different wounds and stuff, but they're treating children for PTSD. Sure. And I was like, are you serious? He was like, they're not soldiers. He's like, but, you know, they're in a very dangerous environment. You know, he started telling me stories. And so I'm wondering, in some of the therapy that that you participated in back then, do you think the children had some kind of form of PTSD or am I way off? Excuse me, excuse me. We don't have some kind of form of it 
we have it again on an industrial level. Mm. Excuse me. Excuse me. Listen to this. You're trying to teach ACT prep and the girls in the back of the room are talking about their girlfriend who got kidnapped, raped, got her ass whooped and dumped in a parking lot. They all got it. Mm. Okay. You see that, that girl that it happened to primary and then secondary are all her friends and tertiary, all the ones that hear the story. And you sitting up there talking about, okay, we're going to do ACT prep because you got to get high test scores. And they look at you and say, you clearly don't care about us. Mm. So right there, so right there, there is nothing you can say that's ever valid to them. Yeah. Okay. Your whole credibility is compromised because you don't know how to listen over there. Instead, you shut them down. Wow. Instead of saying, okay, let's hear it. And then follow up. Show you care. Okay, I've worked at schools, and, and I'm, 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 I'm going to get a little personal in a minute. Do you think? I, I was about to, to get personal, too. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. I used to coach girls basketball in Chicago and a lot of my girls were either in Cabrini green or from K town. And if you come to Chicago and you hear about K town, you're like, don't go to K town. Okay. okay. And so a young lady, a girl got shot right in front of the school, just as the doors were opening up. We're talking about seven thirty and seven thirty in the morning. And one of my girls, one of my girls that I coach, Watch the life seep out of this young lady. Mm. Okay. And the principal, <laughs> the principal, a black man, he, he, he calls us in the auditorium, the teachers, and says, I really want you to exaggerate this event and that we're going to have the critical care unit come out. And if a student asks for any support from you, then refer them to that. I'm like, are you kidding me? That's all you got. That's it. And so the kids, the kids, my girl in particular, she said that EMF don't care about us at all. Well, she was absolutely right. She was absolutely right. He just wanted to minimize it so it was no bad hype on his school because the murder happened at the doorsteps of the school. And the girl that got murdered wasn't a student of ours. She was hoping she could get in and get away from who was shooting after her. Okay, and so he he never did the let's bring everybody into the auditorium and talked about the sanctity of human life, about how this young lady didn't deserve to be gunned down, and about the trauma that it radiates that becomes unresolved, and that's just one incident. That's just one incident. You see what I'm getting at? Oh, see, I totally. See, and so and, and so we have a community, for instance. When a black man looks at TV and sees a fuzzy video of a black male being gunned down by a cop, he identifies with who? Is he thinking he's the cop doing the shooting, or is he thinking one day he could be on the receiving end of a bullet? If he's thinking he could be on the receiving end of a bullet, he's got a form of that syndrome. You see what I'm getting at? Trauma, yeah. That's why I stopped looking at it. He's got a form Twitter of it. He's got a form of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so we, when, see, like, so after a history of lynching and mutilations, middle passage, okay, all this kind of stuff that's been visited upon us, yeah. and our African brothers and sisters, I mean, wait a minute. Uh, and when somebody comes to your country and roughs you up to the point that they force you to speak their language, 
re, you know, take on their religion. Well, that's pretty traumatic too. Mm-hmm. See, see, see. So, black Americans like to say, "Well, they took our culture from us. That's why we're that way." Well, what's up with black Africans? They didn't take the culture away. They imprinted on the culture. Mm. Okay, but the but the brothers that were Fulani, the the people that were Yoruba and Wolof still are today. But they still got traumatized, and when that hammer came down, yeah, yeah, they got see, that neo-colonial. We got the colonial, you know. They got well, they got um, diet coke. Well, they're still coke. Yeah. Well, and so, and, but but what I'm saying is, when we get deeper into real quantifiable healing, yeah, and and that kind of intervention, intervention. For instance, okay, when I had my art center, and and this is not a lie, we were. Uh, in Chicago, there's this event called the Bud Billiken Parade, and it's one of the biggest parades in the country. And it goes through the Main Street, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Drive. And so we were making a float for the parade. You know, it's a summer day. It's in July. And so we were doing huge paper mache. And, and you know, it's out in the, in the lawn of the projects, uh, drying in the sun. And so... I'm so busy working, I'm not paying total attention. So the kids come running in, and I said, well, why aren't you out there painting it, you know? Right. And they said, blah, 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 they said, blah, 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 so-and-so's out there shooting. <laughs> like an idiot. I go out to confront him, right? Yeah. That's what a man <laughs> would do, man, even though, you know what I mean? Yeah, he's the only one. Yeah, you know, so I get I, I get halfway there, and I, I see his gun, and I'm like, wait a minute, I ain't got a gun. Right, exactly. on him. <laughs> You know you you know you know the other part of me I'm I'm feeling myself I'm like I don't have a bulletproof vest right exactly and, and and so he looks at me and he looks at the gun and so I'm like well I'm halfway there let me just walk over to uh-huh. him right so I walk over to him and I say dude we over here with the shorties we making a float da 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 you up here doing this you scaring them to death now at this point I'm terrified right sure and so he looks at me he says man. So he gets into this story about how his girlfriend was upstairs in her apartment with another man. Mm. And so I tell him, I say, well, this ain't the way to sort it out. You know, I know you got to have a gun probably to protect yourself. Why don't you put the gun away, like go home, you know, talk it out with your lady, you know, work it out. But you're scaring everybody doing this. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and he said something like right on and put it in his pocket and walked off. Isn't that beautiful? You know you know, and I I get back to the art center now. I got to sit and chill, right? Because you know my life didn't pass by, and, <laughs> right, and you know, right. you know, you know, you yeah. know. I'm not thinking. I ain't thinking. This is an act of courage. I'm trying to figure out what part of me ran out there, right? <laughs> right, and, right. And, That's what men do, you know, man. That's what we do. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so and so, but I'm looking at it was the engagement. Yeah, he needed somebody to talk to him sensibly. Yeah. Yeah. And you gave him about, the benefit, and you gave him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, and that's not the way to express yourself. See, a lot of times violence, like if you teach public school, the kids use violence for reasons other than hate and anger. Okay, they use it like 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 in the hallway, a dude to have a girl by the neck, and you go over there and intervene, and she'll be like, "We just playing," and you're like, "What?" Yeah, I see that shit now. You see what I'm saying? You're like, what? Like, like, okay, so what is that? Well, you think about it, okay? 
What happens in a wolf pack? They use violence to do things other than, quote, eat. Now, they're good at eating. But if you end the wolf pack, the alpha wolves and the wolves that are supposed to keep order use violence to keep order. And once order is established, it's all cool. Mm-hmm. So violence. So a lot of times the violent violence in our community is a distortion and a corruption that if you had another tool, you could use that. Mm-hmm. You could use that. See, see, this was part of the uh, Honorable Elijah Muhammad's role of engagement with people who were incarcerated to enlighten them that the other things you could do than that. How important was it to your students to have a black man in the classroom who gave a fuck? Um, I am still, I'm seven years retired and I run into students who will pull me aside and explain to me how important it was. Wait, one of them said, every day I knew where you were, you were going to be there at first period class and make me put on that ugly ass ID. I knew it every day. I knew it every day that you wasn't going to let me in the room unless I put on that ID that, that he'd be. And, and I'd be thinking, I thought you hated me the way you would curse me. I used to say, dude, I needed that every morning. Wow. Every morning. Wow. He said, and I knew you'd come to the cafeteria to lunch and say, well, how you doing? Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and, and he'd be like, well, can't you go somewhere? Like, what you up on? But he, he would tell me he needed that. Yeah. He needed that. See, they need that constancy. The girls that I coached. I hope they ain't listening to this because I'll get beat up. The girls that I the girls that I coach call me a lot of times their father. They'll say you. They'll be like you were my high school daddy. Now these girls now got children that are eight, nine, and ten. Okay, some of them got girl got children that are teenagers. They're that old, and so they're still in touch with me, and they explain what it meant to be with a black man to be safe. Who yeah. was there? Yeah. Who was there? Okay. Who was there? Now I always had a female assistant coach. Mm-hmm. So we, we were like the parent formula. Yeah. And I used to tell, I used to tell them when the co-coach tells you something and I tell you something different, we're both right. Y'all just got to figure it out. Mm. Okay. Ain't no splitting here. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, 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 and I was there for every practice. And I was like, Mr. Mom, I get all the uniforms and wash them for her. I bought food for them. You know, I took them away to college camps. I took some to college campus. Mm. You know, I mean, the, the money I made coaching, I just poured back into them. But they let me know that that was the deal. Um, um, and, and we had girls on the team that were, quote, coming out, meaning emerging lesbians. We had girls on the team that were involved in rival gangs. But the bonding as a team and the bonding through the sport and the bonding through the activity and, and, and the fact that we as coaches addressed it all, not like we're going to pretend it ain't there. No, it's here. It's here. It's part of you, so therefore it's part of us. Mm-hmm. And, and, our goal, and our goal is to prepare you for the rest of your life being you. Yeah. So I still hear from them, and a big part of it is that presence that you're there, but you're not there in a hollow way. You're there engaged Yeah. because, because I'd have days in my classes that we ain't teaching anything because I heard what happened on the news and I need y'all to tell me about it. Wow. 
Okay. So forget the lesson. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, I worked at a school that uh, the art room was in the old home ec room. Mm-hmm. So what I would do every Monday, we'd have potluck breakfast. Oh. Okay. So everybody, everybody bring in something. Mm-hmm. We cook it. And, and we do like what the Native Americans called the talking stick. So we pass a stick from person to person. And you had three minutes to say whatever you wanted to, to the group. Wow. And it would stay in the group. And so <laughs> the behavior people at the school, the assistant principal, them were like, how come you never call us for fights and violence in your classroom? <laughs> wow. Because the talking stick took care of it, man. You know, we sitting there with scrambled eggs and cheese and waffles and everything. Mm-hmm. And we eating and listening. And we were like, oh, man, what that happened to you this weekend? You know, you know, and then she's telling her story and, you know, we'd all get these stories out. Mm. We wasn't making, we weren't making art, right? Mm -hmm. But we were taking, we were taking advantage of the resources. But that being there, clockwork. See, see, I always say women provide, excuse how I'm going to say this, okay, and I know I'm getting mugged for this too. Women provide nurturing, which is very important, mm-hmm. and men and men provide structuring, which is just as important. Exactly. exactly. So you got to have a structure there. You got to have the nurturance there. Both are of equal value, and so a lot of times, particularly the brothers, but the girls have it too. Like this, what the girls I coach taught me, and they tell me this. They say, yeah, everybody talks about young black boys need a black man role model, but so did we. Yeah. How do we know what a how do we know what a black man is if we don't see one? Mm-hmm. If, yeah. if, if if we ain't in, if we ain't engaged with one. In that, my uh, that, uh, amongst my effects, I have a um, I have a poster that was given to me uh, by some children in my son's third grade class, and. Uh, mm-hmm. My son, he was in the school years, you know, he's in elementary school, whatever. I think it was third grade. Yeah. And uh, and I would do, for lack of a better description, like a, I would come and like do a Bill Cosby thing, meaning um, like like uh, read to him. I would like do little skits, you know. Yeah. Uh, I would play mm-hmm. like old jazz music for him. I think Bill mm-hmm. Cosby, I'm thinking like some of the teaching things he did back in the day. So, no, I know, what, you, no, I know yeah, what you're saying. Younger people yeah. may not yeah. get the context, but. No, no, they don't know that. They don't know about his advocacy or his for reputation was destroyed. Yeah, but but anyway, yeah. so so I would do that every uh, Wednesday. I think it was every Wednesday, and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just so happens that the charter school was across here from the job, and this that, and the third or whatever. So um, it, I was amazed at how after a certain period of time, you could kind of get a read on the different children's situation at the house. You could tell right. the children had both parents. You could tell yes. which children, you know, had one single parent and were very emotionally needy. You know what I mean? And and, and what I would do, I would come in the classroom, I would sit in little, <laughs> in little t- tiny chairs that they had, mm-hmm. and I would have the children sit in a semicircle in front of me. And mm-hmm. you could always, the more emotionally needy ones, especially the girls, they would try to get closer and sometimes like mm-hmm. lean on my mm-hmm. knee or something. And, you know, mm-hmm. I know the, the context, you have to be careful, you know, so you're like, okay, little one, just right. back a little bit, you know, kind right. of a thing and, and all like that. But, you know, I would, you know, teach them little stuff and play little games, whatever. And I started to realize me, me just being there, regardless of what I was talking about, mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. important. It, it provided some kind of benefit, for lack of a better word. It's a, it's so 
total it's a total impact, man. You're you're resonating and affirming positive black maleness. Mm. You're manifesting it and you're manifesting it there. See like 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 okay, like people use the formula, if you would just come over here to us, we can help you. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? If they had it together, they run their happy butt over to us. Right. They ain't got it together. So you got to go where they are. Mm-hmm. You can't even meet them halfway. You got to meet them all the way. Yeah. You know, see, and, and, and like when I was coaching, I could, I coach three, six, I coach girls basketball for seven years in Chicago public schools. Mm. And I could never, I could never get a Chicago public school nurse to address my teams on hygiene, these girls, hmm. the nurses would never show up. They would never do it. They claim they were too busy. They'd say they was going to show up and wouldn't show up. So guess who had to do it? You? I did it. I did it. Where were the moms? In, in, well, that's not a question to ask. Where were the moms uh, and shit? Uh, uh, um, let's just say the moms were busy. Okay. Okay, but so you buy, so what are you telling me? You going to the store and you buying tampons for these girls? Is that the deal? Go through the checklist. Oh my god! I bought it all. I bought it all, and it was in the gym bag with the basketballs. And when you made the team, the captains of the team would take the whole team to the locker room and introduce them to the bag. Wow! And we'd be at a game. And I turned to one of my captains and I'd say, so and so, so and so needs the bag. I'm gonna call a timeout. When she gets over here, take the bag and take her to the gym room locker room. Wow. And Captain knew what that meant. That's rough. Man. And I used and I used to replenish what was in that bag all the look, I bought sports bras. Wow. Okay. Okay, it was all in the bag. Okay. You, look, you're killing me. You know you're killing me over here, right? I mean, okay, that's look painful it, shit. <laughs> Look, it got to a point. Girls would come to me and say, "Coach, I need the bag." Wow. And I say, "Okay, there it is." I say, "Okay, there it is." Okay. Woo! Man. Okay. Yeah. All right. We had you name it. If if a high school girl needed it for her hygiene and her femininity, it was in that bag. That's beautiful. Okay, it was in that bag, and uh, so, and, so before, and I, before I made we, before, to before I forget. The folk that are listening, I just want you to clear this little part of the sidebar. Yeah. We need black men in the schools. That's what this is oh. about. That's that's really what I'm. I'm. I knew this was coming. Yeah. I just did. You know what I mean? We. This is the point. We need black men who give a damn about black children in the schools. You might Wait, be let a me, teacher. Let you me might add a little be, bit. Go let ahead, me. Go ahead. Let me add a little go ahead, bit. Go ahead. Please, please, please. Let me in there. I want to say something to people who are listening. What we tend to do when we see a troubled child, we say, it starts in the home. Mm. Well, that's a way of letting yourself off the hook. Because when you say it starts in the home, you're not a part of that household. So it's easy for you to go to your church or wherever you're going and pray for them. If you say it's the result of our culture, now you are culpable and you have a responsibility to find a way to help because, because when our culture can cure us, there's no such thing as a bad home. Mm. So, and so 
a lot of these things that we call bad are part of a cultural construct that invades and contaminates the home. Yeah. Self-hate, self-hate is a cultural trait. It contaminates the home. Okay. Non-achievement, glorifying non-achievement is another dysfunction of a cultural trait. Mm-hmm. So, so now you get non-achievement and self-hate in the home. It didn't start in the home and invaded the home because it was in the culture. Mm. And so, and so this is why a lot of times as a teacher, when you call home and tell the family what the kid is doing, the family's like, we don't represent that. We don't do that in our home. I know you don't. But when your kid turns the corner and gets on their phone with their buddy, yeah. what do you think they're seeing then? They're seeing the culture. They're seeing parts of the culture that they buy into. Mm-hmm. And it's not in the home at all. So when we engage it as the culture, See, I always say good old Negroes, the old Negro community had this down pat. Okay, when you walk through Negro culture, they owned you. Mm. They, wouldn't even, they wouldn't even go to your house. They just pulled you aside. Right. Okay, they pulled you aside and you got the tune-up right there. I remember a little boy, you know, when I was a little boy. Now explain dude, that I'm to the gonna... millennials now because they might not catch that, that, that reference. I know what you're talking about, but explain yeah, it. Yeah, I know ahead. you know. Uh-huh. Okay, Negroes, Negroes were the good people that were coming of age uh, in the early part of the 20th century. These were black people and Negro culture came out of slave culture. Mm-hmm. And in slave culture, because the way families were always disintegrated, everybody was brother and sister right. until you got older and then you were mama or daddy. And then after that, you were pops or moms, okay? And so, and so, and so after the great migration, when blacks came north, Negroes settled these community and Negroes ran their community. So Negroes, Negroes didn't play this, you being bad on the street and everybody's looking the other way. No, they engaged you and your bad. Mm. So, so when I was a kid, we talking probably 1958, I'm going to steal me a popsicle. So I reached my hand down into the section in the store where the popsicles were, and I flipped it up my wrist so it went inside the sleeve of my coat. And when I turned... This Negro grabbed me, <laughs> he grabbed me by the elbow. He said, give it up. And he made me shake it back in there. And he's got me by the elbow, right? right? He got me by the elbow and he took me to somebody's house. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they all gave me a lecture on why I shouldn't be doing that ever again. And, da, 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 and I just gave it, I'm like, forget it. I ain't going to be shoplifting. Beautiful. You know, you know, I ain't going to be shoplifting. You know, it, it sunk in. It took a while, but it sunk in. You know, you would get these things that they would do. They would even call your house. They would deal with you. Now, now, of course, nowadays that can be a bit of a challenge. No, because nowadays, nowadays we black, and when we black, we say you need to mind your own business. You own something. Now, I you know, still do it you know. because, or I just can't help myself, or, you know what I'm saying, or I actually give a fuck. And, and, and most yeah. of the time, Believe it or not, the children will at least listen to me. You know, you know what I mean. Well, well, this is the deal. We're you and I are regular. This is the norm. There is nothing special about you and I right. doing this. Right. What it really comes down to: if you don't police your own, yeah. somebody else is going to have to do it. Yeah. And when somebody else polices us, we don't like it. Mm-hmm. We don't like it at all. Okay. And that's anthropology, all people are that way, except we have this dysfunction where we 
don't want to really take on the responsibility of policing ourselves. Okay. Now, that's going to lead me to another point, policing ourselves. In your experience as an educator, therapist, uh, community father, do you feel like you've met a lot of bad kids? Uh, I would say, yeah. Okay. They were real bad. They were real bad. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's some that, okay, what I call bad is they're dangerous physically okay. to them, to themselves or other people. Okay. Uh, uh, there's some kids that are aggressively learning resistant. They're there to prove to you, you can't teach them anything and it ain't nothing going to change that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, and so you have, now that don't mean I gave up on them. Yeah. That don't mean I didn't engage them. Uh-huh. Okay. That didn't mean I didn't do all kinds of things. You know, I mean, even, even sometimes I would draft a girl to be on my basketball team. Cause I knew she was awful. I knew she had all kinds of problems, but, but come over here. You're going to be part of this. Okay. You're going to be part of this. Cause this could be good for you. You're going to be part of this. Right. So, 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 you know, cause bad exists for a reason. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so once you see, okay, it's bad. Now you go to the next thing. Like, what's behind that bad? You know, you know, you know what's behind that. This leads me into a, a story uh, about the short time that I was teaching in uh, in a middle school. There was this young man. Uh, little, uh, I was teaching in middle school. So that's like, uh, let me see, eighth, ninth, tenth. Uh, yeah. And um, and so this particular classroom, I forget what we were talking about. I think it was, I was computer vocabulary i don't know whatever and uh so this little kid he would not take any of my tests he was very disruptive always talking to little girls you know talk to his friends kind of thing and uh you know you know but i love the kids but i was a terrible teacher you know what i'm saying it's like you know you know i've treated him i i think i behave more like an uncle than a than a teacher kind of a thing because i just didn't have the skills but I love the kids and I had degrees, whatever. So this little boy, he kept talking while I was talking. And finally, you know, and of course this is middle school, so all the kids are small. I took the chalk and I banged on the, on the board, you know, you know, with the chalk. And everybody got quiet. Oh, Mr. You know, soul. <laughs> Mr. Oh, Mr. Soul is bad, whatever. And uh, I said, Johnny, we'll just call him Johnny. Come up here. Mm-hmm. He was like, oh, so he's, he's literally like trembling and everything, right? You know, so he comes up to me. I said, hold out your hand. He held out his hand. Now, you know, he expects me to smack his hand or something, right? Mm-hmm. I put the chalk in his hand and I went and sat down and I pointed him. I pointed at him and I said, teach my class. That little boy was listening to every fucking thing mm-hmm. I said. He knew exactly. all the vocabulary words. He knew everything. Exactly. Even this little exactly. trick where I look at the right side of the room but call somebody on the left. He even was doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And I was okay. blown away. And it's just that exactly. nobody was giving him, including me, nobody was giving him the attention and the opportunity right. to show right. how fucking smart and talented he, he was. And that's exactly. why I say we exactly. need black men in the schools. Why? Because you can identify with that kid and give him the benefit of the doubt. Because the wait, white wait people is not going to do it. How about this? How about this? <laughs> the kid, 
can quote to you volumes of illegal drugs. <laughs> he could he could he could convert it from metric to right. pounds and ounces. Right. Okay, he he can tell you what time of year is the best time of year to get it. So he's he's considering atmospheric conditions, fertilization, <laughs> and all this stuff. And and I I, re, I remember I had one of them like that at the high school, and I said, dude, have you ever heard of commodities? Right. He was like, brother, what? He's like, brother, what that is? I'm like, you doing it every day. Right. I'm like, you doing it every day. Yeah. I'm like, but you need to look at this other thing. Yeah. You know, and so a lot of times it's a misapplied skill set. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so uh, the 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 black community suffers from a lot of things, including a brain drain. Mm. So what happens is for each of us that, that, okay, one of us gets a college degree and tends to leave the community, and then another of us finally gets a release date and leaves incarceration and goes to the community. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so it's an imbalance of the incarcerated showing up and the educated leaving. Okay, so let's 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 look at that. Um, I okay. started off this show talking about you know the assassination of Nipsey Hussle. He was a rapper who you know he stayed in his community. He built up a lot mm-hmm. of businesses. There's some people yeah. of his financial status and and, and and they leave and they come back to visit. What do you think about that? What do you think about people staying? Well, I think, I think first of all, on balance. See, see, I I use a term that I call the black on black boycott. Okay. That that a lot of us use any reason to not do legal business hmm. with each other with each other. Okay. Okay. So so um, what that's led to is a lot of the poverty we have in our community. We okay. love to blame the community on the mayor, the governor, the president, but we are rare to blame it on each other about like, well, if you stop going to the store and I stop going to the store, the store goes out of business. Right. Or, or if my street crew is shooting up your customers, you're going to lose your store. And now none of us going to have a store. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, or, or if all my folks are going in there stealing all the time at your store, you're going to lose the profits. So now you can't hire my children because your store is gone. So, so, um, and, and then when we talk about it, well, when I went to, when I went to Jonathan's store, you know, I stood there for five minutes. He didn't talk to me. I can't do business with a black person. I ain't going to ever go back. Well, you know what? Jonathan was solving a problem. Right. He wasn't ignoring you. He was solving a problem in his business. Mm -hmm. But when we go to a store that's owned by the other people, we'll stand there 20 minutes. (laughs) They won't complain. (laughs) And go back and go back the next day with more money. Yeah. And tell all our and tell all our friends to go there. So so we have wiped out our businesses and make it hard for the businesses to flourish. And see, if I'm not mistaken, Nipsey Hustle at one point in his life was engaged in some street crew. You know, I don't want to call him a gang. I'm gonna call sure. him a street crew. Sure. Okay, he, he was he was engaged in all that. Mm-hmm. Uh I myself came up, my uncles that helped raise me were the leaders of, at that time, the most notorious black street gang in the city of Chicago. 
And so, and so um, I was there as a little boy, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, when the police decided to take them down. And mm. it was nothing pretty. It was nothing pretty. Okay. And so I end up at the School of the Art Institute. I end up studying in Paris, winning a drawing competition. I end up being, of all things, a courtroom illustrator for WGN. And so, and so when I go to do the Black on Black Love Fine Arts Center in the housing projects and it's surrounded with street gangs, there's a piece of me that felt like I'm going home. Wow. You know, I used to call it going to the, I used to call them going to the country club. Okay. Okay. But if you looked at, but if you looked at my resume, you didn't see nothing about me being raised by those uncles. Right. You didn't see that. And when you looked at me, you didn't see that. I wasn't sporting those colors. I wasn't talking that with that accent. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't doing that. But when I got over there, okay, <laughs> shoot, man, like the, for some reason, I don't want to go through it now. They decided not to give me art supplies. Mm-hmm. I, said, I said, no problem. I called all the women up on check day. Mm-hmm. I said, look, come down to the art center. I had a big old brown bag. I said, I want everybody to give me a food stamp. Oh, wow. And then when I'm do with the, then when I'm do with the food stamp, I'm gonna go to so and so so and so. I'm gonna get some buffalo fish, some catfish, and we're gonna do a fish fry. They looked at me. They said, "What you gonna do?" I said, "We're gonna do a fish fry." And then after I sell the fish dinners, I'm gonna give you all the dollar value of your food stamp. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I was buying supplies. We had no problem, man. We had a fish fry every month. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Oh, man, you was a great man. That's all types of strategy right there, man. That's beautiful. You see what I'm saying? Okay, and they were lining up. They were lining up to get them some fish, and then we collect all the big bones from the buffalo fish, and we use it with clay for elephant tusks. (laughs) Okay? 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 And so so my sponsors were like, well, what you doing for supplies? I said, y'all don't have to worry about it. We got that taken care of. Got that taken care of. You know? Okay, we in there. Okay, I'm in there cooking with them, you know, and they like, whoa, dude, you know how to do this? I'm like, oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, we were having a good old time in there every month. All right. Yeah. So, and so it's like that ain't, but, but like I said, so that's there, you know, not sure. You look at me and, you know, like, okay, he lightweight, he ain't nothing, da, da, da. But, you know, moments happen. Like one time in the public schools, you know, one of his brothers, he, you know, it's high school. He's bigger than me. He probably outweighed me by 20 pounds or more. So, you know, I'm not letting him in the room without his ID. They used to hate this, right? right. But, but I'm trying to teach him. So I'm trying to teach him, like, you got to respect authority. Mm-hmm. If, if, if you can learn it with me, my hope is when the police show up and say, young man, I need this corner, that y'all just walk away. Just let him have a corner. If all he wants is a corner, give it to him. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so this one brother, he, he, he looks at me and he says, well, Mr. Only, what would you do if I just, and he started cursing and threatening, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I take off my watch and I'm taking off my ring. He said, what are you doing? And so I leaned to him and I said, what your friends going to say when they find out this bloop, 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 just mopped up the hall with your big bop, bop, bop. He was like, what? <laughs> cursing at me, you scream, he running down the hall, it's the only scream, he's cursing at me, he's cursing at me, he's threatening me, so I'm, I'm picking up, 
I'm picking up my jewelry, right? And I'm thinking, man, I can't be that real with him. I don't, you know, this dude's really losing it, right? So yeah. I had to reel him in. It took a couple of weeks to reel him in and let him know that I wasn't really going to do that. You know? But believe me, I was thinking I was going to do that. But, but you, you, know? you showing him that side gave him the opportunity to give you the kind of respect he, you yeah. know what I mean? You know, it's that yeah. structure you yeah. talked about, you know, the nurturing versus the structure, you know, kind of yeah. thing. So that's important. You know, that's very important. Or, or, or like, <laughs> I used to be one of the fight jumped out. I would grab whoever was winning the fight to break the fight up, right? Okay. Okay. And so then I turn and I'm like, let me grab who's losing the fight. Hmm. Okay. So I, so I could protect them. Mm-hmm. So it was a girl fight, right? So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sheltering the girl who's getting really beat up by this other girl. Mm. And I do it so quick that the other girl's throwing a punch. And when I say she's throwing a punch, dude, she hit me right on the chin. I'm seeing little Tweety Birds going around <laughs> and stars and shit. Yeah, the straight right hand. <laughs> look, look, dude, what she tagged me with, I'm holding on to this other girl because I don't want to hit the floor. Wow. Okay. And wow. then I could hear, I could hear the girl I'm holding on to threatening this girl. And I'm thinking, no, no, no. She ain't throwing another punch because I ain't catching another <laughs> right, one. Right, right. <laughs> okay. Wow. And, and the girl, and the girl that hit me, she's like, Mr. Only, Mr. Only, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but I just wanted to hit that B. She ain't nothing but an agent. I'm like, you, you, I, I remember her name. I was like, please calm down. Just sit down. Wow. I said, I said I'm not going to write it up. You're not going to get suspended again. Just sit down. I said, we're going to calm this down. But, dude, at that point, I got a flock of birds floating around in front of me. And you know, beautiful. Now, now we okay. take that, we freeze that moment in time, and then we move forward to where yeah. now they're calling the cops right. on elementary school kids because they don't say Pledge of Allegiance or, yeah, yeah, or, yeah. or devils in blue uniforms grab a little girl and slam her, you know, in the well, classroom. See, well, see, this is, this is what I want to say With for all our public schools. With the fucking teacher standing right there. I mean... This is- this is what I want to say for all our public schools. You don't have that in the school if members of the community would just volunteer at the school more often. Okay. See, see the biggest difference between the so-called rich white school and the underprivileged black school is parental involvement. Mm. So, so if more people from our community, you ain't got to have a child in that school to do this. If you, if you go to the school and become a registered volunteer and they do the background check, mm-hmm. if, all, if all you did was washroom duty or sharpen pencils, mm-hmm. it's another adult body in the school from the community. Yeah. So you would diffuse so much male or female by being that extra body in the building. True. So, so, that, so that a kid that could be out of pocket the teacher or the administrator could call one of these registered volunteers mm-hmm. to say, could you, could you take Malik out and spend a minute with him? Yeah. And he doesn't have to call the police. Yeah. Yeah. And because, it's easy to because, do. I mean, I did it. They did a little background check, you know, and they had to wait. I yeah. think it was a week or so. And then, you know, once you're cleared, you know, you come in, you, 
you know, like I said, yeah. I, I just basically just sat down and read to the kids, and yeah. it makes yeah. a difference. I mean, of course, your kid is not going to be acting up because you're there. You, you know what I mean? And, and then you know, oh, but, but but guess what else? Uh -huh. Your kid's friends are not going to act up because his dad is there. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, yeah. see, and and then when you're not there, if your son's homeboy's mama's there. He, your son ain't going to act up because like, man, my boy's mama's in the building. Yep. I got to be cool. So it cools, it cools all that stuff out when you have a parade of families and people from the community walking through the building, yep. not when the kid's in trouble, but when there is no trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it, uh, do lunchroom duty, man. You're not going to have fights in the lunchroom if you got five or six men and women from the community helping out in the lunchroom. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to be there. You know, if, if, if they volunteer for security at sporting events, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. And so, and so we need to engage the schools on that level. I'm saying we, the community. Yeah. And, you need I, to just I, come and, in and, and say, tell me if you think I'm wrong, but I always felt like if you go to parent teacher conferences for your kids, it makes mm -hmm. the kid more valuable in the eyes of the teachers. Because they well, know sure. that a totally. that a parent gives a damn, and they won't try to, you know. What I mean, it, it could it could head off some foolishness or something, you know. Well, well, it it creates a bond. Okay. Because it's called parent teacher conference for a minute, for a reason rather, because you get a minute to talk about the parents' values and interests, and the teachers' challenges and opportunities, and how to make them click. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's not filtered through the kid who's going to spin it in the benefit of the kid. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You know, you find out like, you know, I mean, you just get the details and, and, uh, and so you do this. Like I used to be there, like in Chicago, it's called report card pickup. So, uh, two semesters out of the year, the kids can't ha have the report card. The parents have to come pick it up. Mm -hmm. And, and, and in a high percentage of black schools, parents don't come to pick them up or they send a friend to pick it up. Mm. <laughs> so they don't know what's going on. And my thinking is, if I have your kids for 25 to 30 hours a week, I'd like to think you'd want to know me. And I'd like to think, I'd like to think you'd want me to know you. Shoot. The few times you know, I went to the, uh, to the parent-teacher conference and I saw how much of a hassle that I got, but making sure yeah. that it wasn't railroading my kid, I just can't imagine what goes on with the children whose parents are just unavailable. I can't imagine. Well, this is what I'm talking about. But well, this is what I mean. And see, it's that detachment that creates the opportunity for the negative aspects of the culture to fill the gap. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. You know? And so, and, and then when it's out of control, now it becomes a criminal justice problem. Mm, and they can't wait to throw our babies in jail. They can't see. And, and so, and so, and so, you know, um, to avert that phenomena, mm -hmm. we get from age four to age 18 to have a whole lot of positive input on each one of our young people. Yeah. It's a great opportunity. God in his infinite wisdom, makes sure when they show up, they're little bitty and they're helpless. Uh -huh. So you get to help them. Yeah. You get to help as they get bigger mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, 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 and you get wisdom. You've seen it. Yeah. Okay. And so when it's a community that disintegrates because of what I call the black on black boycott or, 
or the uh, the cascading results of our experiences as a people here. Because I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get into blaming. Right. Okay. I'm just gonna say the cure is in our hands and we need to manifest it. Mm-hmm. I don't think there is any problem the African diaspora has that it can't solve if it commits itself to solving it. Agreed. You know? Agreed. Absolutely. And so and, and so I don't care if it's a big problem or a little bitty problem. If the only thing you did was help kids to understand an easy, safe route to get to school and back, that's enormous. Yeah. If that's your contribution, go do that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you out there when school gets out to make sure for two blocks, nobody's going to run a stop sign that it's safe for the kids to cross the street. Mm-hmm. Think that child that you keep safe is going to be safe to learn. It's going to be safe to go home and being safe. They could then flourish like other kids on planet earth who are safe. Mm-hmm. You know, those kinds of things, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and people think, the problem is so huge, they don't know what to do, but do something small. Small makes a big difference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just do little things. Just do the little things, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, if you, can, if you can just be eyes on that block, a whole lot of perpetration just does not occur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, you know, and so, you know, it's just things to do. That's why I say, like in your case, you go to the school and read, well, somebody who doesn't feel comfortable with that could just go to the school and be a hall monitor. Mm. They could monitor a stairwell so that the kids don't drop stuff on somebody's heads. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's how I mean, it, it, yeah, there are things you could do that are helpful that the school district can't pay for anymore. Right. Or uh, willing to pay yeah. for. So, so let's, let's wrap this up. Cause I want to be, be conscious of your time. And I told you 20 minutes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> we well, well, we had, well, well, we had, we had minute 19, so let's bring it to a close. <laughs> so we, we started so, out, uh, you explained to us, uh, you know, what our therapy was and the importance of it, mm-hmm. how it can be a diagnostic yeah. tool as well as a therapeutic tool. We talked about, uh, you know, the importance of, you know, not only, you know, black men in the schools, but, you know, you know, just, just com- community involvement. Talked about parent-teacher conferences. And speaking of conferences, mm-hmm. there's a conference coming up in September uh, that you wanted to uh, to talk about, and this was like the original Black Comic Con. Uh, can you give some, give exactly. us some details? Exactly. About that? Talk about that conference coming up in September in Chicago. Okay, September 28th at Kenwood Academy, which is in Hyde Park, is the it's the same neighborhood where President Obama has his home and where Elijah Muhammad had his home and Farrakhan has his and Jesse Jackson and Operation Push. This is the neighborhood where the Black Age of Comics was born. And we had our first Black Age of Comics convention back in 1993. Uh, about seven years ago, we expanded into a partnership with the DuSable Museum of African American History in Chicago. And now we're going back to give in our freestanding convention at Kenwood Academy. If you want to know more about it, you can go to blackageofcomics.com and we will start listing information. That website, blackageofcomics.com, is a portal that gives you all kind of information, particularly on the independent Black Age of Comics movement. Uh, there's things on there, links, sites, 
work about writers, publishers, and all of that. And same thing with art therapy. If you want to know more about art therapy, you could Google the American Art Therapy Association. Chances are they have a chapter in your state, but you can get very good information from them and resource materials. So once again, Only Studios is going to be rebooting. It'll be our 23rd independent Black Age of Comics convention in Chicago, September 28th. And we make it, and we making it free. You know, wow. we just want to, okay. we just, we just want to show the love. If you show up, you get in free and we're going to have uh, an array of independent publishers. They get in free. These are people who supported us through the decades. So we want to give the love back to them in the name of free. Beautiful. Now, just because it's free, that don't mean you bring, you don't bring money with you. Bring money to support, the artists, <laughs> support the vendors. Well, see, that's how it goes. That's how it goes. If you don't have to pay to get in, you get more to spend once you get in. There you go. There you go. So we want you to spend it with independent publishers because it's the independent publishers. Again, we're talking independent businesses that like, you know, how there's a movement in the United States by things that are local. Yep. All right. Instead of going to the big brands all the time. Well, if you don't if you don't want to see your money paying for big penthouses in New York and Tokyo, you should come to independent Black Age Publishers because we all live right next to you. Professor Turtel only. It's been an honor to have you on the program. Whoa! You must be a real sci-fi fan to come all the way down here. Yes. I'm here for the book. You mean the sci-fi novel Malcolm Mars by Jonathan Soule? Yes, how do I get a copy? I need it to save the universe. Okay, okay, no problem. Just go to Amazon.com and look up Malcolm Mars by Jonathan Soule. You can read it on your tablet or smartphone. Do you want to sharpen your writing craft and start earning more money from your words? How about enriching your craft even further with scintillating insights from celebrated pop culture, political, and Afrocentric commentators? Well, you're in the perfect place with me, the Sinister Minister Faust, on my podcast, MF Galaxy. Find it on all the places you find podcasts and patreon.com slash MF Galaxy for all the bonus content. MF Galaxy, what will you discover?